Sub Rosa. A podcast about security, human rights, conflict and law with an Australian and Southeast Asian focus. Hello. In this episode, I talk to David Wells about signals intelligence and counterterrorism. We first talk about his former work in GCHQ in the UK, and then we talk about terrorist threats, particularly from ISIS and Al-Qaeda. We also discuss efforts to disrupt terrorist plots in Europe before talking about counterterrorism in Australia and discussing both some of the practical problems and civil liberties issues involved. Uh, David, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks. I'm looking forward to it. It should be interesting. Cool. So you used to work for GCHQ in the UK. What did that involve? So GCHQ are the third and largest UK intelligence agency. So they are the Signals Intelligence Agency of of the UK. Um, The equivalent here is the Australian Signals Directorate. So basically what that involves um, is, is, is communications intelligence in the sort of bigger picture overview. Um, so, you know, what you imagine in sort of spy movies or the public consciousness post-Snowden of hoovering up all, all of the communications data in the world. I mean, that's essentially the role of GCHQ within the UK setup, but obviously not on the scale or the intrusion levels that perhaps people imagine. Okay, so it's, it's the UK's equivalent of the NSA, yeah. but not on quite a large scale. Yeah, so it's it's significantly smaller, but it's also significantly bigger than the other two intelligence agencies in the UK, and, and significantly bigger than any of the intelligence agencies here. So, I mean, the more you work in that field, the more you're aware of the relative size and ability of the intelligence agencies around the world. And yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm biased, but I think UK and GCHQ are generally punching punching above their weight. And then after that, you came to Australia and worked for the Australian Signals Directorate. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that role was um, it was primarily a, a liaison role from the UK, so it was working in and with the Australian intelligence community, um, you know, embedded within, so there were roles working directly with, with Australian intelligence staff, but also representing the UK um, in Australia and trying to, as, as much as possible, share lessons learned from things that the UK had experienced in the counter-terrorism space, but also, you know, where the interests intersected which increasingly happened after sort of 2011 2012 into the middle east then uh, trying to bridge those gaps and pull things together as much as possible okay so the biggest development with the threat of terrorism recently has been the rise of islamic state or isis how has this changed the counterterrorism landscape in the past few years yeah i think there was a perception particularly in sort of 2011 2012 or beginning of 2012 that with Bin Laden gone, with Al-Laki gone, with Acre on the ropes, that terrorism, whilst it was still going to be a, an issue moving forward, that it was no longer the, the major priority for governments in the West. And, you know, there would be an ongoing threat from Islamist terrorists, but, you know, the, the idea of this one big organisation in South Asia targeting countries across the West, or in Yemen, Somalia, was perhaps going to be a thing of the past. And I think, you know, not... Not that the intelligence agencies took their eyes off the, the ball, but there's a, a you know an inevitable resource implication if you decide that the threat is reduced, you decide to divert resources elsewhere. So I think Islamic State and their rise definitely took people by surprise. And I think partly because the Syria crisis 
unfold. It didn't unfold slowly, but I think there was just a general level of uncertainty about what was happening. There were a lot of people who went there from the West initially to fight Assad under quite genuine auspices of, of wanting to defend their country if you're from, from Syria. And it, I think their emergence and their resurgence in Iraq um, was something that people weren't necessarily anticipating and did take people by surprise. I think the speed clearly took people by surprise and I think their inability to, to really counter that for a good 18 months to two years is, is why we're at where we are today because you know a lot of the problems that the West and Europe are facing particularly a result of people being able to leave to Syria relatively unhindered up until sort of the end of 2014, early 2015. Um, and I suppose as a result of that, you've got this huge cadre of people with experience and training. Um, not that it's all about the foreign fighter problem, but it's just the sheer scale of that, which is something that even the bad days of Afghanistan is, is you know, exponentially huge in comparison. So with that has come, simultaneously the resurgence of al-Qaeda in, in Syria too. Um, you know, as, as we focus more in the Middle East, there's been a resurgence in Yemen for AQAP. So it, even in Afghanistan and Pakistan, the suggestion that al-Qaeda are larger then than they've been for some time. So yeah, the whole sort of picture has changed quite dramatically over the last four to five years. And I think the scale we're looking at now and the scale over the next 10 to 15 years is just exponentially larger than anything we're anticipating. Okay. So on another podcast, Blogs of War, uh, Patrick Skinner from the Sufan Group argued that we're in a pretty bad situation at the moment because we have ISIS under heavy military pressure, but it's remained intact. And so because of that military pressure, he argues, they're making a greater effort to carry out external operations like the Paris attacks that murdered over 100 people. But because they haven't collapsed, they still have the operational space to prepare and launch these attacks. They're able to impose a reign of terror on the people under their control. Um, they remain entrenched in cities like Mosul and Iraq, which they're implanting IEDs all over to make sure no one can take it back. And so he argues we're now in effect in a situation where they're weak but not defeated. We're really facing the worst of both worlds. What do you think of his bleak assessment? Yeah, it is hard to be too positive. I think rightly so the western governments have made a big deal about the losses territorial that the islamic state have had over the last uh, nine months or so the loss in finance but again it's all about sort of not having taken our the ball but the, the progress they made up until 20 sort of midway through 2015 means that winning that back is going to take a long time and i think you know the, as they lose territory, we've already seen over the last few weeks that they can revert to their origins as more of a terrorist group. So they're carrying out attacks in parts of Syria that they don't control or have any presence. They've carried out a huge escalation of attacks in Baghdad to undermine the Iraqi government there. So it, is, it isn't it is worst case scenario because I think without military intervention, their state would be thriving in comparison to how it is now. So I think we've We've had to counter that narrative of a successful caliphate that was running itself and can govern and had legitimacy. But the cost of doing that is that, you know, the state structures in Iraq and Syria aren't in place to counter the terrorist threat. And as those terrorist attacks escalate in Iraq, you, you then undermine the Iraqi government and you have uh, an escalation of sectarian violence there as well. So, yeah, short of dramatically taking Mosul 
and Raqqa quickly, which I don't think anyone's really anticipating, we are going to see an escalation in sort of conventional terrorist attacks, I think, in the Middle East. And I suppose there's always the potential that attacks outside of that region in the West will carry on as well. So, it, yeah, it's difficult to be too positive looking a year, 18 months ahead, but at the same time, the alternative is to backtrack from what we're doing. We're sort of set on this course now and there's not really any going back. The, the, the chance of taking a different approach to Syria when Assad crossed the red line or getting boots on the ground or whatever scenario that people imagine, I think it's, it's, it's almost, you know, foreign policy, your choices get progressively worse and smaller as time goes on generally. And I think in Syria and Iraq, we're now faced with a situation where we have to support the Iraqi government there's a consensus now that Assad will remain in place in some way um, in whatever the transition in Syria looks like. So there is just going to be an almost inevitable period of, of violence and brutality continuing, much as the West's efforts are having an impact and making progress. It's just not going to make the progress that people want. And I think if it does make dramatic progress, the, the rebuild and creation of institutions that actually do their job in the Middle East is an even larger problem and you know we've seen with Islamic State before that they can thrive in those situations as a conventional terrorist group rather than as a state. So, yeah, it it doesn't look particularly positive. But I think there's the counter to that is that whilst it's incredibly bleak for the Middle East and for Iraq and Syria, that doesn't mean that the flow on violence is inevitably going to hit the West. And we we need to remember how lucky we are in comparison to what's what's happening there. That the threat. You know, we hear a lot of talk about inevitability of terrorist attacks and how they'll inevitably get through, whether it's in Australia, the UK or whatever. But I think statistically, we're still looking at relatively low instances of, of terrorist attacks in Europe, albeit um, with quite a few recently. So, yeah, I think that the violence in the Middle East is going to be a continuing factor for, for quite some time yet. And there are definitely ways the West can make it better. There are definitely ways the West can make it it worse, but I don't think they can alter that course. It's a difficult one. Mm -hmm. So where's Al-Qaeda in all of this? Yeah, I mean, I, certainly over the last year, I think it's become a bit more in, in vogue over the last few months to start warning about Al-Qaeda again. And it, it, it sort of worried me maybe a year ago. And, and, and since then, you know, you've had relatively serious uh, respected people, including Petraeus, talking about working with al-Nusra or working with moderate elements of al-Nusra to, to help defeat ISIS. And it, I think in in the sort of this push to make ISIS the worst terrorist group in history and the biggest threat to mankind, we've sort of skewed our perceptions of what a terrorist group is and I think what al-Qaeda have been and remain. Um, you know, it's it's sort of become win at all costs against ISIS, regardless of what happens and what the, the long-term consequences are. I and mean, I think whatever we should have learned from Al-Qaeda is that they're strategic and they're smart and they think long-term. And, you know, their presence in Syria has shown that they've taken a very different approach to Islamic State, but one that's embedded them in the opposition in a way that makes taking them out a lot harder. And this idea that somehow we can defeat ISIS and then just roll up al Nasra afterwards is just seems incredibly naive to me. It it isn't clear when Al Qaeda and Al Nasra specifically will flip the switch and look again at attacks against the West. And I, I suppose the same goes for AQP in Yemen. That 
we've seen this rebuild and this strategic sort of rebranding of themselves as the more moderate Islamist terrorist group. Um, but ultimately their aims are the same and the split with Islamic State is real but I think fundamentally they both want to create a caliphate through terrorism. You can differ on timescales, you can differ on tactics and you can have the personality issues and squabbles that we've seen um, between them and I guess in all terrorist groups but yeah fundamentally I think you know a lot of pretty smart um, observers think they're the, the bigger long-term threat and I think I probably would agree with them on that front because I just think they're they're more likely to attract. I mean, perversely, they're almost more likely to attract the sort of funding from the Gulf that they used to rely on and, and dried up because they are seen as moderate and relatively acceptable relative to uh, Islamic State and potentially more amenable to working with um, you know the finances in the Gulf that have that sort of motivation. So yeah, I think Al Qaeda is going to remain a threat and. Anyone who thinks that because they've got, you know, an elderly theologian as leader, that they're somehow irrelevant to the the modern jihadi landscape, I think is is entirely wrong. They're they're not called in the same way that Islamic State is on social media. But I think if if you know Islamic State burns bright but quickly, um, they're potentially going to be there to pick up the pieces. And I think the idea that we can destroy either organisation is just naive and we're not really learning lessons from the war on terror. You don't really destroy them in a way that you can do with a conventional army, you know, to arrest thousands of them, they're not going to die in that way. And I think, yeah, whatever's left when eventually Raqqa and Mosul are taken, um, yeah, they're, they're potentially going to be looking for a new group. I mean, we've seen this week that Islamic State are already re like moving the goalposts and saying, oh, we're not actually about maintaining territory it's all about keeping the idea alive but yeah I mean Al-Qaeda are still here and they still have a huge number of experienced um, jihadi veterans so I think yeah the most recent major ISIS attack in Europe was in March with the bombings of the airport and train station in Brussels what do you think of the criticisms that have been made of Belgium's counterterrorism preparedness? Do you think they're valid or do you think they are sometimes unfair? Yeah, I mean, they've become a bit of an easy target and I think there clearly were so many individual errors and systemic issues that they were facing that it's hard not to say that the attacks could have been prevented if certain steps had been taken. Um, I mean, there's always a, a certain degree of retrospectively looking back at things at the time that didn't seem particularly interesting as intelligence leads and going oh well, now we know he killed x number of people so therefore this is actually incredibly significant so i think there were lots of gaffes and huge errors along the way and systemic problems as i said but i think partly it's just a, a reminder that in intelligence account terrorism it's you know you're always preparing for something further down the line and i think you know, particularly so the community policing aspect in Belgium that seems to be non-existing in the areas of particularly strong radicalisation. That isn't something that you can just turn on the tap. So after Charlie had to attach, you can't just go, okay, we'll give a bit of extra cash, give you some new powers, job done. You know, these are long-term issues of radicalisation, marginalisation, and I guess individuals travelling to the Middle East unhindered. So the idea that in 2015 suddenly you can stop a problem that you've not done anything about for the preceding decades 
is, is, is naive. So I think from an operational investigative point of view, there were lots of mistakes that were made, but fundamentally, you know, it's going to take Belgium time to get up to speed to where it needs to. And it is a classic example of a small state with a small intelligence law enforcement apparatus that was as good as it needed to be for a long time in terms of the threat it faced for its own national security. So yeah, they were happy that people were leaving Belgium or maybe not happy, I think that's perhaps the wrong word, but there was an element of there wasn't a problem for Belgium, so they were doing their job. It's hard Almost to... Almost like the problem was solving itself. Yeah. Jihad is leaving the country. Well, and, that's one less person to monitor. And I, I think that's, you know, in, in any government agency, when you're looking for more resources, more money, more power, it's hard to justify when you don't have a clear and present danger. So, you know, for a long time, there's this building sense of Belgium's being at the centre of plots or travelling overseas and getting involved in things, but it wasn't directly affecting Belgium in the same way. So it was almost, you know, 2015 is too late to try and counter that problem. That, that doesn't mean there were things they should have done that they didn't, and they definitely took their eye off the ball, but I think, yeah, the, the degree of preparedness is something that they needed to have been working on five, ten years ago, and you're just constantly playing catch up with the problem. If you don't you know, the, the sort of lack of access they had to allow Abdeslam to be free in a suburb that he lived for four months as the most wanted man in Europe. You know, those are the sort of community relationships with the police and intelligence agencies that if you've built up over a number of years, you'd have confidence that you would know where, where they were. I mean, the idea that in, in Sydney or Melbourne, someone could hide out in a particular suburb for four months and travel around and be known by people there and not report to the police is terrifying um, yeah. so yeah that's that's a sort of long term issue that they're going to need to confront and the worrying thing is so far that you know there doesn't seem to be any indication they're taking a sort of systemic approach to reform it seems very much you know we'll look to the rest of Europe to help make us better which is part of the solution but not actually confronting the, the domestic issues they need to we've heard a lot about large scale terrorist plots being in theory, easier to prevent than a lone individual with just a knife and maybe a smartphone. But in the case of the Paris attacks, this involved many plotters, lots of planning. It was a large-scale plot that had been in the works for ages. Why have European intelligence agencies struggled to prevent attacks like Paris? I think, again, what we've learned about the Paris attacks is that there were opportunities that weren't taken and there were individual mistakes. I think the, the, the whole point about the large-scale attacks is that Yes, they're, they're, they should be easy to, easy to prevent. There's much more leakage of plans and intention, and you've got more people involved, more moving parts. It's more complicated and, and harder to keep secret. I think partly the European CT world at the moment, there's a, just an overwhelming number of targets and plots that they're working on. I think partly with the big plots, you, you have to know what you're looking for, and you have to be able to find it when you're aware that you're looking for it, if that makes sense. And I think whilst there, there have been enough warning signs that Islamic State were going to try something in Europe and obviously lots of attempts in Belgium and France, that you know the Al-Qaeda model became quite established and quite a known thing about how people would go to Pakistan Afghanistan for training, there'd be authority granted for an attack, there'd be communications potentially with that operational planner when the individuals would return to Europe. So it was something that there was a sort of set MO that people were aware of and were looking for. And I'm not saying that 
you know, the, the Paris attacks, for example, there, there was a, there, I think there were things that intelligence agencies should have been looking for and should have been able to find. I think we know from some of the concept that Abood was using that there were opportunities there. But I just think, you know, intelligence agencies like a, any government agencies don't always move as quickly as they should do. And I think you, you should be aware of the basic plots and premises and threats that, that could emerge. But yeah, I think the the one that difficult thing that's always hard to assess from the outside is with leads that weren't pursued or people who weren't surveilled for whatever reason who were they surveying instead who were they prioritizing instead of those people and what were they basing that on so you know with Abdislam for example there's been lots of suggestions that he should have been a priority target but and I think there were justifiable reasons why he should have done but you until you're looking at a piece of paper and saying okay we can cover 20 individuals at this level who else are we covering and what do we know about them? You can't really make the call on whether it was the right or wrong decision. So retrospectively, it's easy to say he should have been looked at. Um, but it's always a, a resource and priority and, and risk decision. So I think you know, we know that all of the European intelligence agencies are looking at a huge number of targets and they are disrupting pots and arresting people. So there was also an element of there are a lot of people out there that are looking at some of them that have a lot more information on than others and you just make a judgment call about which ones you're going to put physical surveillance on technical surveillance on um so yeah it's a, it's a combination of factors but i do think from any perspective you know there were things that should have been done that weren't done in both paris and brussels yeah i think one british intelligence official a few years ago said something like being on the radar doesn't mean they're under the microscope Mm. And that's sort of an important thing that there may be many people interpretations become aware of, but they can't, and it would be quite a different society um, if this was to happen. They can't intensively surveil anyone who comes to their attention in any way. No, and I think that on the radar thing, you know, a lot of the time afterwards we see, oh, he posted this on Facebook, he uploaded this photo, or someone had called in and warned about them. and. Again, retrospectively, you think, well, that's obvious then. We know they became a terrorist. Why weren't they looked at? But at the time, if you're getting hundreds of phone calls a week about people being potentially suspicious or, you know, a, a network with links to a particular individual might come into the dozens and dozens, then, yeah, you, you've got a huge number of people you could potentially look at and you're always just making, making a decision based on what you know at that time and assessing the risk based on their past. So, you know, a, a number of the individuals involved in Brussels and Paris were formerly petty criminals. Now, we're seeing a, a, a pattern over the last two to three years of that transition between crime and terrorism, but two, three years ago, I don't think that was accepted as a, a pattern that you should be aware of or interested in because it just wasn't something that had been a consistent pattern before. So, yeah, the, yeah, I think that's a good, a good analogy that this on the radar thing, I think it'd be much more worrying if, if terrorists were emerging who weren't on the radar at all, because that sort of suggests that you're not looking in the right place at all. Whereas it's not reassuring that you've looked at someone and not pursued them, but it at least suggests that you're, you're broadly looking in the right place. Yeah. So in your job at GCHQ, you had experience with the bulk collection of data, uh, which was used to help disrupt terrorist plots. Can you tell us what that involves? Yeah, so obviously there are the limitations on what I can say about that, but I think in the um, UK there's an investigatory powers bill that's currently going through Parliament and uh, the Home Office and GCHQ have, have released a sort of bulk powers 
um, justification and a bit of an explanation about how they work and, and roughly the ideas behind them. So, I mean, broadly speaking, in intelligence, you always want to take an targeted approach because you don't want to waste your own time and you've got more than enough to be getting on with. But there are occasions where if you're aware of who you're looking for, but you're not 100% sure what, I mean, I guess fundamentally what GCHQ comes down to is, is communications devices. And so I might be aware of an individual that I know to be of interest to me in a particular country uh, or region within that country even more specifically, but I don't necessarily know exactly what phone they're using or what computer they're using. So, you know, some of the bulk uh, power justifications GCHQ have, have released have talked about, you know, being aware, for example, that a certain individual was using a particular type of uh, iPad, I think, in their, in their operational case. So in that example, uh, the human intelligence agent said, this guy based in, let's say Syria for the for case of argument, is planning tax against the UK, he's going to this internet cafe and he's connecting using this particular brand and make of uh, iPad. Um, so the, I guess the broad idea with, with that approach is rather than, you know, because you don't have the specific information you need to be targeted yet, you can ask a targeted question of a bigger data set. So say, well, if we could, you know, in an ideal world, if you could collect everything coming out of RACA, for example, you might be able to pick out something more specific within that bigger data set. So then the idea is that you go broad before, so that you can go narrow rather than going broad so you can look at everything in that data set. So the, the, the big idea is to try and ask a specific question of a big data set so you come back with a small data set um, rather than, I think that sometimes a misconception is that if you're using bulk data, it involves manually or you know via um, algorithms looking through in an intensive way every single piece of data before you get that answer whereas from an analyst perspective it involves asking a specific target question based on known behaviors that you can link to a particular individual or particular group and do you find surveillance debates in the uk different to those in australia yeah i mean there's always seems to be a sliding scale uh, in the anglosphere of interest in the idea of surveillance and surveillance issues so US has had a, a very lively debate um, after the Snowden leaks and there have been some minor tweaks to relevant legislation. Uh, in the UK, the debate has mainly been prompted by the um, IP bill and its predecessor was known as the Snoopers Charter. So I think, again, relative to the US, maybe there's less interest in it as an issue, but relative to Australia, again, there seems to be even less interest in that debate or the, the concept of surveillance and what's is and isn't acceptable. Um, so I don't really know why that is. I mean, there have been some Australian revelations um, in, in both WikiLeaks and, and Snowden leaks, um, but it just doesn't seem to be an issue that particularly resonates with Australia in the same way that, you know, in Europe there's a real drive towards uh, great privacy protections and obviously the same's happening in Silicon Valley and, and the US as well. But yeah, the Australian, it, it doesn't seem to be an issue that really features for most people uh, and I think the UK is becoming more of an issue as the IP bill is going through Parliament at the moment there's been a lot of talk online a lot of campaigns to sort of provide greater protections and greater transparency um, to the, the powers of the intelligence agencies yeah I, I don't know why it is. I mean it's literally it, it doesn't even touch the surface in Australia
What do you think of the prospects of a major attack occurring here? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. It's it's difficult because you don't want to sound complacent, and I think the messaging around threat levels and uh, potential threat to Australia are a very interesting issue in itself. But I do think relative to a lot of other parts of the world currently facing terrorist threat, Australia is relatively well off. Um, you know, the, the well-known sort of border issue, I guess, not just the border security, but just the sheer remoteness from any of these current battlefields going on. So, you know, fundamentally, it's hard for a non-Australian to get into Australia um, full stop. It's obviously slightly easier to protect your borders when you've only got a handful of international airports that, that people can return via, um, certainly compared to, say, Europe, where you've got overland travel. So. You know, the foreign fighter problem is going to be an issue. Um, I mean, ASIO have issued various assessments and about the numbers over there, and they've remained fairly consistent for a while now. So you'd hope... 110 is the latest figure. Yeah, and it seems to have been 110 for a while. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, you'd hope that you've got sort of comprehensive coverage of who all of those individuals are, but obviously there's always a chance that someone's got out there that you, you're not aware of or got out there in a way and um, like kind of Sharif uh, where you were aware of them but couldn't prevent it so I think the foreign fighter problem you know and realistically that, that those numbers are going to continue to diminish as the fight against ISIS goes um, well for the West and badly for, for ISIS so those numbers will decrease but I think that the larger issue are the huge numbers of people who've been refused travel or had their passports stripped here in Australia so you know that has implications that they don't necessarily have the expertise and the experience so it might have an impact on the level of complexity of any attack that they could be planning so we've seen I suppose of the successful terrorist attacks and the ones being disrupted that have largely been of quite low complexity sort of targeting police authority figures using knives or machetes or whatever so we haven't really seen for a while anything that would qualifies mass casualty um, being planned here. That doesn't mean it won't be planned. Um, I think the other big advantage that Australia has is that even though it's an enormous country, the pockets of individuals that ASIO and AFP are looking at aren't necessarily spread hugely widely and they were really confined to the capital cities and only not all of the capital cities either. So it does make the problem slightly more manageable from that perspective and slightly less dynamic. Um, although obviously we saw a few weeks ago a group going up from Melbourne to um, aiming for Cape York, so that that was a new one uh, for most people, I think. So yeah, I think the prognosis is positive, but it's also you know, relative to where Australia has been in the past. Obviously, a, a much higher threat level than it's been before. A much larger group of individuals to look at, and you know, I suppose the great unknown is what happens to Islamic State and Al Qaeda over the next few years, and what impact that has on the radicalisation of individuals here and their motivations to go overseas to fight. So if Syria and Iraq goes in the direction the West wants it to, what's the, the next place that people want to go to and fight? There's been a lot of talk about it being Libya, um, but I do, I do think where that country is located makes a big difference in terms of how easy it is for people to get there as well. So that's another factor. I think you know, the ability for Australians to fly to Turkey and then go overland from there was a, a very easy route as it was for a lot of Europeans. So, yeah, I mean, there's obviously a, a heightened threat level, there's a large group of people who are, are radicalised and, and obviously we've had a lot of talk about how young those individuals are. So 
whilst you might disrupt a plot or be aware of someone, we're looking at a long-term problem. Um, if you've got 14, 15, 16-year-olds that are on the radar of the authorities have been arrested, have had control orders placed against them, then you know, in five years' time, ten years' time, what, what are they going to look like? And we've seen with the high-profile jihadis from Australia, but also from the UK, that the same individuals have been recycled. So you know, individuals linked to plots here and plots in the UK have, have ended up in Syria and have ended up being notorious. So there's nothing to say that you know, five, ten years down the line, something similar to Syria reoccurs, where we see some of those individuals um, making their way out there and being a threat. I think there's the slight difference this time is that with the legislative changes we've had here, sentences are longer, um, so people won't be um, emerging back out of prison as soon this time around. But yeah, it's it's an unknown, but I do think relative to many parts of the Western world, it's it's looking positive, and I do think the border issue has meant that Australia's been able to put, keep a lid on the foreign fighter problem. So whilst the numbers are quite high, they haven't increased dramatically, and as border controls in Turkey and Syria have improved as well, we wouldn't expect that number to increase anytime soon, I don't think. The thing about recycling is very true. Like, with people convicted for Operation Ben in 2005, turning up in Syria, mm. and there's still familiar names that turn up. Well, that, I mean, that's the thing, Jaffy John, and you just like, like, you know, these guys have been on the radar, but I think, again, it was that part of that thing of, 2011, 2012, you know, basically everybody in the UK was focused on the Olympics and keeping that secure. So individuals getting out of the UK into Europe and then travelling overland was less of a, a priority than it is now. So it means it's great we can stop people leaving. But yeah, those same guys. So I guess that's the thing. In five, ten years' time, if the terrorist threat is seen as lower and you've still got people in their 20s and 30s who've done stuff or wanted to do stuff, there's nothing to stop them yeah. going out again. Okay. How would you generally describe Australia's counterterrorism approach? Uh, what's going right and what potentially isn't? Well, something that um, I talked about in, a, in an article in The Age, and I think I might have actually borrowed from Patrick Skinner at the SUFAN group, is the uh, strategy of raid early and raid often. And it doesn't, or I don't think it's always going to be appropriate. And I think in the country, say, like Belgium, uh, with the sort of issues they've got with radicalised, or suburbs with a large number of people radicalised, it could have a sort of the opposite effect that you're aiming for. But the basic premise is that because plots are escalating quicker and the attacks are a lot less sophisticated, you don't have the same months of lead-in time. I think, you know, some of the things in the UK that in the sort of 2005 onwards, you, you might have a, a period where you're aware of a plot, it's developing over time and the decision is, you know, when do we step in, when do we make the arrest? You obviously want to get admissible evidence if you can so that you can get a conviction. Um, so that, that was always a debate about, you know, how long do you let things run? And there was always a debate between police and intelligence about the risk um, of letting things run longer than one side might be comfortable with. I think now with the much shorter lead-in times, as soon as you get that lead intelligence that someone's planning to do something, you're much more likely to, to go in and go with that raid option. The way it seems to have been working um, here over the last 18 months is that you know we've seen that a number of times where there's been a big raid, there's been some initial charges and then a long pause and then subsequent charges have emerged as the investigations progressed and I think 
that's the other thing we saw with uh, shooting in Parramatta that you know the follow-up to that has been incredibly complex in the way that you know the individuals who've been arrested and charged since were able to develop that plot but keep themselves at arm's length means that you know that investigation is obviously going to be a complex one so the basic principle I suppose is that there's much less of a um, capacity to deal with risk and waiting for admissible evidence but the, the downside is that if you raid early you might disrupt that specific plot you have an impact on the network but if you don't have the evidence to prosecute you're just delaying the problem again and obviously the the other risk is that from a community perspective if you raid and you don't end up with a you know a number of charges and successful prosecutions it can look like you're targeting a particular group or um, you know parts of society in a way that you don't want to do from a radicalization perspective so it's it's it is high risk but it, it will work it, it will work in terms of disrupting plots but it's just whether it works in in that any sort of long-term way and i think it can only work if it's done in conjunction with a sort of wider society focused approach to all of the issues of radicalization and you know a much broader approach to foreign policy as well so it's not a a sort of one-size-fits-all solution it doesn't work everywhere but I think the Australian police got quite a lot of uh, criticism initially for going in in such perhaps unnecessary numbers and, and high-profile raids but I think it's just the, the risk threshold is so low now that you you have to do that. We've recently introduced laws in Australia to strip citizenship of dual nationals are suspected of being involved in terrorism. Essentially, if they're overseas and they're suspected of it, they can lose their citizenship. And if they're within Australia and they're convicted, they can also lose their citizenship. What do you think of laws such as these? I think it's challenging in the CT context because, you know, a lot of the time with new laws and new powers, they're not really evidence-based. They're, you know, an assessment made on a power and what impact it might have. And there aren't really many examples where you can prove whether it's made things safer, what the long-term impact will be. I think citizenship stripping is one of those where the UK has had powers in place for a while now, and I haven't seen any assessment of how effective they've been or exactly when they've been used, although there have been a couple, uh, including one uh, this week, uh, high-profile cases where they've given a bit, bit of background about how and when they've been used. But yeah, it, it seems to me that it's, you can understand the broad logic of saying, well, if we uh, at a stroke we can reduce uh, 110 f foreign fighters by 30, 40, 50, that's great from a resourcing perspective and from a threat to Australia because they can't come here anymore. Um, but it's not clear to me whether it's designed to be a punishment or whether it's designed to be a preventative measure or both. Or I mean, in the specifics of this case, I think there's a f obviously known issues with how it's applied, who applies it, and I think that's more of a legislative issue. But broadly speaking, in CT, I'm in, I'm in favour of things that you know we can prove will have an impact, and I know that's often difficult. But yeah, I'm I'm not convinced about this one, and, and as a dual national myself now, <laughs> it does it does make you think about how that would make you feel as a as someone whose citizenship is essentially worth less than uh, a single national. I know they've had issues in France, they've been debating this, and in, in France it seems to be almost implied to be targeted at a specific group within society. But they pulled back in France, didn't they? Yeah, they've had to, and I think 
it, that's in part because of you know the political debate there went in a way that the government didn't want whereas here it's sort of been a bit more um, bipartisan support so yeah it's a, it's a difficult one you can see the logic of saying well particularly if you've already committed a terrorist offence and quite a serious one that you know we don't want you in Australia anymore we want to get rid of you from the, the country but um, you know one of the fundamental issues is who's going to resolve who's, who's going to be looking at that person from that point onwards like if they're a dual national of a country that has weak governance and weak security apparatus is that going to make the world safer and I think it's perhaps a bit of a nationalistic approach to which maybe Australia can a afford to take. A bit of a parochial not my problem approach. Yeah and Australia can in a way can afford to take that because we're so far away from everywhere else but if I were, you know, the high profile UK case this week was a Nigerian British dual national. If I was in Nigerian government, I don't think I'd be that happy about being landed with a, an individual with links to a bunch of really high profile jihadis and involvement in a number of terrorist cases. And I don't think I'd be that confident in the Nigerian government's ability to deal with him as a potential threat to Western interests in Nigeria. Well, security services are overstretched already with Boko Haram and everything like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's also a narrow idea of what, how much an individual can pose a threat to Australia or the West in general. So whilst they can't do anything on Australian soil, there's Australian interests all around the world. So yeah, it's a bit, it is a little bit parochial. I can understand the logic and I can understand from a resourcing perspective saying, well, these guys are not our problem anymore. And you know, it's a huge punishment, and if you were a dual national, particularly one with a country where you had no roots or connections, you know, there's this theoretical idea that it might make you think twice. But I, I don't think the idea of, um, you know, tough sentencing really comes into play in your mindset if you're thinking about conducting a terrorist attack. I just don't think you are thinking in a way that says, "Well, I might do it, but I face the threat of X." You know, You're not going to do sort of cost-benefit calculation. Not necessarily. I, I can see in the after the event, you'd be pretty unhappy about the idea of someone taking away your citizenship and having to move to a country that you didn't know. But I just don't think it, it has a deterrent effect necessarily. And maybe I'm wrong. Um, so yeah, it's it's a really I mean it's a live debate and it is a, a difficult issue. But I think yeah, ultimately Australian government's job is to keep its people safe and. It, is potentially doing that by strip, stripping citizenship of people who are posing a threat to Australia, but there's just that knock-on effect of what what it means for the West and other countries in the world that perhaps is less considered at the moment. Yeah, I have a very similar view on it. Um, so even if the even if the intelligence is perfect and the people whose citizenship is stripped are really dangerous terrorists, they can still, as you say, endanger Australia from outside of Australia. They can instigate attacks within Australia as mm. Neil Bukash and Barry Alley allegedly did. They can kill Australians overseas, as you pointed out. There's Australian interests mm. across the world. You know, most Australians who die in terrorist attacks die overseas, like in mm. Bali. Um, and of course, they can still murder people in Syria and Iraq and keep sex slaves and carry out war crimes and brag about it and things like that. Mm. And stripping their citizenship doesn't stop that at all. Mm. So I have very similar um, objections to that law. Yeah. It- yeah, I'm, I'm just not, I'm just not 100 comfortable with it, and uh, yeah, it, I just don't know what the impact will be, and I think it's just going to be one of those where we won't know for so long, you know, and we don't really know how often it will be used. I, I imagine it won't be that frequently based on the UK experience, but we just don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, and generally, a lot of Australian counterterrorism laws have only been used quite rarely 
Mm. So ACO's um, coercive questioning powers have only been used slightly over 10 times. Mm. I think in the past 10 years, their detention power hasn't been used at all. Preventative detention orders have only really been used about less than 10 times, I think. Mm. And it's only been in the past year or two. And control orders have only really started being used a lot over the past year. And if well, not really a lot, we're talking four times. Mm. So I do similarly suspect that, that citizenship stripping law will only occasionally be used. Yeah, um, exactly. But that... <laughs> but, but I think... It, it, I'm not yeah. convinced it's ever worth using. No, and I think, you know, understandably not... You know, most governments don't want to tie them down to a really, themselves down to a really narrow set of circumstances when they draft legislation. So, you know, you have guarantees based on precedent and process and policy rather than based on legislation. And I, I think that makes lawyers and advocates nervous that you're just saying, well based on precedent with other powers and how other countries use it, we wouldn't use it that often. But obviously it doesn't say that in the legislation, so I can see why people are naturally anxious that it would be used quite broadly, when probably it wouldn't, but there's nothing set in stone on that front. Yeah. All right, so finishing up soon, what advice would you have for other people who want to become involved in counterterrorism? I think it's a, it, it, it can be a fantastically rewarding career option. Um, you know, I think of, of all the things that GCHQ worked on, it, it, this was an incredibly rewarding thing to, to do because you fundamentally feel like you're keeping people safe and you know that's something that not a lot of people get a chance to do. So I think you, you, incredible opportunities in terms of who you can work with, the sort of things you get exposed to, a huge amount of, you feel like a huge amount of responsibility at quite a junior level, which I, I found really rewarding. So I think it's a fascinating career. I think you also see things and do things. Well, do things. You see things that aren't necessarily that comfortable either. So, you know, you're exposed to a lot of violent ideas and imagery and ideology. Um, it's a fascinating uh, area to work in. I mean, I, ha I haven't really studied it academically in the same way, but I think you know part of the challenge in counterterrorism has been marrying the academic research side with the intelligence side because of classification issues. And I think. There's definitely room for more progress down that road and more collaboration, but I suppose the beauty of actually working on the inside is you do get access to the, the classified interesting stuff and you get a much better idea of what's really going on behind that. Um, so yeah, I, I've personally really enjoyed it and found it a very interesting place to be able to work. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks.